So, just to preface y'all for tonight, we have a, another question for tonight. Uh, tonight's question is a hard one um, and is one that I think we as a church need to pay more attention to. I think we don't think through this enough and we just act. Um, so I, I'm hopefully by the end of this, we have really thought through this question. And as we have thought through the question, we are able to respond in ways that are truthful and are loving. So our question for tonight is, can we just agree that love is love? Can't we just agree that love is love? Um, So the first thing I want us to think about is what kinds of love are there? What kinds of love are there? So this is for y'all to actually respond to me. What kinds of love are, are there? Yes. Fatherly love. Okay, fatherly love. Yep, great. Friendship. Friendship, yep. Are those the only two? Sibling. Do none of y'all care about your moms? Sibling, mom. Mom, sibling. Pet. Pet. I hadn't thought about that one, but I guess that's true. <laughs> what you, someone else say something? Like relationships. Okay, so romantic. Romantic love. Unconditional. <laughs> Unconditional. Yeah. Okay, yeah. All right, good. So, even with all of those, what I want us to see tonight is that all of those are windows into who God is. And the passage that I want us to first start with before we do anything else or talk about anything else is in 1 John. So, you can go ahead and flip there. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, that's towards the end of the Bible. I think 1 John is after hmm, Titus? 2 Peter. Before 2 John. Thank you, Thomas, if anyone was struggling with that. All right, 1 John 4, uh, starting in verse 7, says this, Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Big phrase right there. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That's speaking to Jesus. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. So the very first thing I want us to see is this. God is love. God is love. Which means right off the bat, love can't just be love. Because it has to have come from somewhere. So we see in this passage that God is love and that we know love because love is from God. And we already talked about a couple different ways in which we are able to see a window into who God is. And why we know what love is. So we already mentioned fatherly love. 
And the Bible speaks to that in Hosea 11, 1 through 4, as a father to Israel. Matthew 6, uh, verse 9, Jesus to the Father talks about fatherly love. And we're not going to sit on each of these. There's, there's some other stuff to go. I'll go ahead and say this too. This is going to feel like a fire hydrant, so just bear with me, okay? Um, so with the Father, God loves you more than any human father ever could. This is one window into how we know love. Motherly love. Isaiah forty nine fifteen talks about um, a mother's love for their child in comparison to how God loves you more than any mother could. This is another window into how we, how we know what love is. We talked about brother and sister love. That's all over the Bible. We see that in the relationship um, of Jesus to his brothers, um, to James and John, um, the sons of Zebedee. There's multiple um, languages of brotherly love, and we're even called in brotherly love to one another. And then the last one is romantic love. Romantic love is also supposed to image who God is. Remember, romantic love isn't just love. Romantic love is first God given, and then we understand it to be love. So how does, how does that happen? How does that work? Well, we see that male and female, sex and marriage, were created to tell us or point us to Jesus and his love for his church. Over and over again in the Bible, it talks about Christ as the groom and the church as his bride. Those metaphors are meant to show us and make us think about marriage and the dynamic of marriage. Genesis 2, 24 tells us that, man, that God made man and woman and that they became one flesh. As the Bible unfolds, we begin to see the metaphor of marriage being used by God in relationship to his covenant people, Israel. Jeremiah three twenty also says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 16, 8 also says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corners of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. This is all God talking about Israel, but in language of wife and husband. Then we see Jesus use the same metaphor in the New Testament, which I already talked about, as a groom and the church as a bride. Luke 5.34 tells us this truth about Jesus being the bridegroom. Saying things like, and oh, sorry, then we see Paul, after Jesus, talk about this in Ephesians 5, saying things like, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We already see in the picture that God displays for us through Scripture that God has defined love. God is love, which means God has defined what love is. And that's no longer our choice to be able to define it. Throughout Scripture, God has defined love and the boundaries for it. And this is actually great news for us. Why? Because we are not infinitely wise. We are not very smart. And we are not very discerning. God is infinitely wise, infinitely discerning, and 
infinitely intelligent and sovereign. He knows our hearts and he knows our deepest desires. You realize that God actually knows your deepest desires more than you know your own deepest desires. And that's because we lie to ourselves all the time about what we actually desire. <clears throat> so he, um, and then the why, so then the how, because he created you and me. God also made our bodies different to image his love. The differences in our bodies are there so that we can fulfill the call of Genesis 2, where he says what a man when he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that they shall become one flesh. One flesh is meant to mean literally one flesh. I'm not going to expound too much more on that. That would mean literally becoming one. That was the picture of what God had intended. This fitting together brings life literally brings life. The fitting together of man and woman is life-giving closeness. This image is Christ and his church. You know, over and over and over again in the Bible, we see that Christ is united to his church, that they have become one. That picture is the same thing that we see in Genesis 2 when he says, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Christ has done that to the church. Again, it is a picture of what we are to see. So let's chat for a minute about something important. Lots of people in this room believe that romantic love and one day marriage will change the world for us. You may be sitting in this room dreaming of the day you finally meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and they are going to make all of life better. And you're going to be able to get married and it's going to be happy and amazing. I think about the song in Aladdin that Aladdin and Jasmine sing, A Whole New World, right? A whole new world. Dazzling places and never knew. We believe that romantic love is the goal or destination of everything we're trying to do sometimes. And I'm sorry to break this to you. You probably already know this, but maybe you don't. But romantic love will not make a whole new world for you. Or fix all your problems or your longings. Because we were first created for God. And the beauty of what marriage is loses its beauty if it's not first found in God. That God is love. If you think that about marriage or romantic love, you're headed for disappointment. Do you realize it is totally okay to not get married? Let me say that again. It's totally okay to not get married. We see Paul in the Bible. He never gets married. Jesus does not marry another human person. Why? Because if... We have Jesus, then we don't need another sinful human to complete us. Again, this goes back to if it doesn't start with God defining what love is and showing it to us. Then we're left to our own devices, our own intelligence, our own culture to decide for us what love is. 
One of the ways we see God is love is also through friendship. So we, someone mentioned friendship already earlier. Listen to this. Um, this is from Rebecca McLaughlin. She says this. The Bible says that Christians are one body together, that we are brothers and sisters knit together in love and compadres in arms. Those come from Romans, from Matthew, from Colossians, from Philippians. Paul calls his friend Onesimus his very heart in Philemon. And he says he was among the Christians in Thessalonica like a nursing mother taking care of his own children. That's 1 Thessalonians. This is very intimate language. And this shows the depth of love of friendship can bring. Oftentimes we just set our sights of depth of love meaning relationship romantic. But the Bible provides such a rich picture of what friendship can be. And what the value and beauty and depth of intimacy that friendship can bring to you. Jesus says this, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so all these are ways we see love, the window into the truth that God is love, not love is love. So let's chat about a couple things real quick. What does this mean for human relationships? What does all this mean for human relationships? First, let's talk about sex. You know when you are out camping and build a massive bonfire to roast those delicious marshmallows, you're thinking this is a great idea. And it is. Now, if you came home and decided to build that same bonfire in the middle of your family room, it wouldn't be so great. There are boundaries needed for such a gift. And the same thing is true for the boundaries we are given with sex. Sex outside of marriage is like building that bonfire that's supposed to be meant for marriage in the middle of the living room, consuming, destructing And hurting everyone around. Sex is an amazing and wonderful gift that we receive from God. And it is beautiful if done in the covenant of marriage. When it happens outside the boundaries of marriage, it becomes like a fire in the middle of the living room. As we already said, sometimes so amazing, it turns into something that brings terrible hurt and destruction. Did you know that surveys actually have proven that people have, that have had multiple different partners are less happy and less fulfilled? It's because the creator of sex, God, say that again, the creator of sex is God, has made it to exist in the covenant of marriage. And instead, we have taken it and said, nope, we know better. It is made to exist in the covenant of marriage. That's where it is most beautifully and wonderfully enjoyed. Okay, but what about the covenant of marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman? Is that okay? What if they really care about each other, they're faithful to each other, and they don't choose to partake until they're married in sexual relationship? Well, I think we need to look at two different passages. Romans 1 in 1 Corinthians 6. So first, Romans 1. 
Romans 1, 26 through 32 says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve punishment. The Bible is not uh, flexible or wavering on where it lands on same-sex relationships. Now, before I read 1 Corinthians 6, I want to say this. He's not wavering or easy on any sin. If you want to go ahead and look at the list that I just read. This is just one of the many that Scripture calls us out as that is not God's design. For humankind. That's not what's best for us. So 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is the important part, though, of 1 Corinthians 6. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What does that mean? That means if you struggle with any of the things that were just listed, God still offers forgiveness. God still washes. God still cleans. And God still sanctifies and justifies all sinners the same way. There's not a separation. There's not a difference. We all are broken and we all struggle with sin. We have different things that we struggle with. But God washes us from those things. All these things are not pointed out so that we can never enter into the kingdom of God, but rather to call all of our hearts to repentance and into being washed, sanctified and justified in Jesus by the Spirit When Jesus calls us to follow him, it means giving up all things that are sinful. For some of you in here, it will be greed. For others, it'll be comfort. For others, it'll be approval. For others, it'll be your things. For some, it may be same-sex attraction. But But Jesus calls us to follow him, and that means giving up the things of the flesh. As we gain relationship and new life with Jesus, we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. What should our response be as the church to those who struggle with same-sex attraction? So we've already talked about the fact that Scripture does speak against it. That it is a sin. It is one of the many sins. It's not a separate sin that sits over here. It's one of the many sins to which God is calling people out of and to live in righteousness, to be clean, to be forgiven. 
But how are we as the church to actually respond to people that we know in our teams, our classes, our friend groups who struggle here? Love and compassion, not hate and self-righteousness. You see, when someone shares this, some of you in this room immediately have a thought pop in your head like, whoa, I didn't realize you were that messed up. How would you feel if someone looked at you that way when you shared with them your struggle in any area of your life? That's how we look at the people who struggle here, as if they're different, as if they're somehow more broken. We're all broken. Every single one of us needs love and compassion. We don't want to be met with hate and self-righteousness. That you might believe that you're better than someone else because they struggle here. And you'll find out about that and you'll talk about it with one of your friends or discuss it on your team or make fun of them by calling them a name, whatever it would be. That's that's not love and compassion. We are called to love and compassion here. Here Here's some of the things you might hear from culture, though. The people who wrote the Bible were hateful or ignorant And they just couldn't understand how two men and women could have kind, have the kind of faithful love that goes until marriage. You might hear, don't be so ancient. Come into the 21st century and see that all love is beautiful. You might hear, how could you tell someone to deny their desires? I'm going to tell you um, this question when you say, how could you tell someone else how and who They are allowed to love. Well, actually, I'm not. Jesus is. Jesus calls each of us, actually, to deny things in our life which our flesh wants. You might hear, why do straight people get to love the person they want to love? But for me, it's wrong. Again, we have to go back to that God is love and God has set the best flourishing foundation for what love is and specifically what romantic and love between a man and a woman is. Sadly, the church has done a terrible job of addressing these topics. They have treated gay and lesbian people hatefully and they look down on them with self-righteousness. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be known as those people. We want to be known as the people that move toward those who are hurting. We want to move toward those in every area, not just this area, every area with compassion. Compassion means there's a heart inside of me that breaks for that person being bound in that sin. And I want to move toward them to free them, that they find Jesus and the freedom from that. Do you realize that there's actually never been a time in history when God's design for sex would have been accepted? Think about every pagan religion. This was the norm was to 
throw aside, of course, anything that God would have to say. We see the sexual practices, if you were to study Rome, and a lot of the passages we just read were in reference to Rome. God's design is not what man wants. Because what God wants from the beginning, man has rebelled against. In the garden, Adam and Eve said, not what you want, but what we want. We will decide what's best for us. And if what I decide is what's best for me is to go and do this or to have this relationship, then that's what I'm going to do. But God has a better plan for us. So in the Bible, it's mentioned in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 15, this. Um, Paul leads us to love people well here. So listen here, this is important. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 15. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And listen to this. He finishes here. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What is Paul telling us, teaching us as we look at the people around us? Is that you need to understand that you as a sinner need to have the mind that there is no one out there less deserving or more needing of grace than me. Paul is helping us realize that he's saying I'm the foremost sinner. I'm the worst. I've done the worst things. Which gives him the heart to move towards people with the compassion that we talked about earlier. We need to have this mind when we are dealing with anyone else's sin. Look at your own sin and the mercy and grace that has overflowed to you. This does not mean accept it and encourage them in it. Understand that. That's not what compassion means. Compassion doesn't mean, you know what, you just continue doing what you want to do. I wouldn't let a three-year-old continue to play with a knife because it's dangerous and people can get hurt and it's not what's best and right for them. So we need to move toward them with compassion, but not encouraging them or accepting what they're doing. But it means that as we point each other to Jesus, we do it from a place of equal standing before the throne of grace. 
Because the day will come where each of us stand before Jesus. And you and I and every single person out there, no matter what you struggle with, will need that same grace. When we stand before Jesus. You will need just as much of it as the person next to you and all the sin and struggle and gross and messy that they come with too. Saying no and dying to our desires is hard. Jesus, as we said earlier, is not soft on sexual sin. He spoke in adultery and said that even if you look on someone else's wife with lust, you are committing adultery. Paul teaches that all who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Really realize when he says sexually immoral, that doesn't just mean people that struggle with same sex attraction. That means those of you in here who are choosing to live outside the bounds of marriage in any kind of sexual relationship. That could be with a significant other. That could be with just random people. That could be on, at home on your computer. All of that is sexually immoral. But no one, including you and me, is beyond the love and forgiveness of our Savior. Jesus was well documented for spending time with the sexually broken sinner. He did it a lot and he did it often. Jesus has come for those that need to be healed. If you are struggling with any kind of sexual sin, whether it be same-sex attraction, pornography, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, etc., I want to encourage you to find two people at least that you trust to share that with. This kind of sin specifically loves the darkness, loves the secrecy, We were not created to bear these things alone. Jesus has given us brothers and sisters to help us along the way. We may battle with sinful desires for the rest of our lives, but we need to be reminded that Jesus will forgive us and empower us through his spirit to walk the road ahead. You may struggle with something right now and Jesus may take it from you or you may struggle with it the rest of your life But the good news is that Jesus walks with you and is washing and sanctifying you in that. Can't we just agree that love is love? No, rather, we can agree that God is love. And because God is love, we know all the other kinds of love as a window into who God is and the standard and boundaries that he has set for it. It is God who created us to desire love because we were made in his image, and he is love. Since he has created us and is love, then, we should be the, then he should be the spring from which we get our understanding for what love is. The greatest act of love ever seen was done by Jesus as he paid for our sin on the cross. And one for us, eternal life with God, the closest and greatest relationship you will ever experience. Closer than friendship, closer than marriage, closer than family. Is your intimacy with Jesus. It's the greatest relationship you will ever experience. 
How do I know that? I know that because of the passage we started with. I'm going to read it again. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The greatest love that you could ever experience is found in Jesus. It's not found in a girl. It's not found in a boy. It's not found in a friend. It's not found in a family member. It's found in Jesus. God has loved us because he has sent his son as a payment for our sin. The greatest thing anyone could ever do for you, Jesus did. So can't we just agree that love is love? No, we want to agree that God is love. And from that, we understand all the rest of what we know about love. Let's pray.